I'm going to read from John 15 this morning. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. If you are my friends, you will do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Hi, good morning, everyone. My name is Spencer, and it is a great privilege to be here and to teach alongside this great passage. And so, yeah, um, you've got it in your bulletin. You've got it highlighted where we're gonna just going to camp out here in verse 11 uh, for, the, for the week or for the week um, for this week's message. It's, it's on joy, and uh, joy is one of those words that encapsulates all of us because we, we, want, we truly want to be joyful people. And yet, it's sandwiched into this idea of, of these commands. And so there is a joy. There's truly, joy comes from keeping commandments. And we're not real sure exactly why that is. But as an extension of the Father, his commands are an extension of his love and his words and his joy. And that's what we are able to be a part of, is we get to experience joy by keeping his commands. And that's wonderful. We've been on a journey here in John 15 for the last couple of weeks, and it has been a, a journey in which we are just continuing to press this idea that we have to abide in Jesus no matter what. We have to stay, our lives have to stay connected to Jesus only or preeminently. This is what our job is to do, is to look at our sustenance and to look at our nourishment, and it comes from Jesus alone. 
And then if we abide in Jesus, we see these things start to come out of our lives. If we start attaching ourselves to Jesus, these things just naturally come out and start flowing out of our lives. If we find our nourishment and we find our sustenance in Jesus and Jesus alone, there's just this natural reaction in our lives that happens. See, you see, because then we, therefore, our lives become an extension of Jesus' lives. The things that we count worthy is actually what Jesus has found worthy and honorable. Uh, throughout the church planting um, uh, exercise or experience, we have come down to understand the Great Commission as we need to be disciples who make disciples. And so that's our mission statement. That's just who we are, is that we're disciples and we make disciples. For the last 30 or 40 years, we have almost, we've done us, the church, a, a disservice by only saying that we have to stop by being disciples, where we are to feed on Jesus only, or we are to only make sure that our relationship with the Lord is sound and good and strong. Well, that's part of it, but we've stopped too quickly because the Great Commission says that if we are truly God, Jesus' disciples, we will therefore have this natural overflow into other people's lives. So it's not enough for us to stop with being healthy, good, strong disciples. Because if we stop there, we will become obese. We'll become spiritually obese because we're only feeding ourselves or we're making sure that this relationship is strong. And what we haven't realized is because of John 15 and other passages, that if this relationship is strong, it naturally bears fruit. It naturally has an effect on other people. And so that's why we're disciples who then therefore make disciples. We attach to other people in the same way that we've attached to Jesus. We find ourselves and we look at at least one other person in our life. And we say the strongest thing that we've probably ever said is that, I am spiritually, or I want to be, or I'm following Jesus to be, you know, to be a spiritual advisor or a counselor or a disciple maker in somebody else's life. What would that look like? This is another extension of that, where we see this idea of attaching to Jesus, having a natural overflow into other people's lives, and it really is amazing. What does Jesus say here in verse, verse 11? He says, These things that I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And so Jesus is filling them, or, or coming with this joy, but this joy is full all the way to the top. But before we get to joy, before we start looking at this word and understanding the ramifications of it in its life and then overflowing into others, there's this little phrase that starts with these things that I have spoken to you. It's a small phrase. But it's a phrase that's caught my heart and has caught my attention. It's the fact that Jesus is, he is so very generous. I know it says nothing about generosity in that little phrase, but the fact that Jesus has spoken these things to you is the very fact that he hasn't kept his wisdom to himself. If you are finding a, a relationship with the Lord hard because you think that he's distant, in this little phrase we see first and foremost that Jesus has shared his very best with us. He is sharing his words and he is sharing his wisdom with us in the same way that he comes alongside a very sick person and he comes and he comes to come and to bless. That is an extension of who he is in the same way that he comes upon a, a downtrodden person. He delivers them. That too is an extension of his, his generosity. He is a good teacher. And with this teacher, he just overflows these things to us. 
And so uh, Jesus here, um, verses or chapters 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, these are what they call Jesus' last discourse. These is the last moments before Jesus is, is crucified. Uh, this last discourse, if you have an old-timey kind of red-letter Bible, they may still print those, but if, you have a, if you've heard of a red-letter Bible, this is this kind of all the things that Jesus says, they actually highlight by making the print red, not black. Well, all of, most of chapters 13 and 14 or 15 and 16 and 17, if you've got one of these Bibles, you flip and it's chapter after chapter and chapter and you see very little black because these are Jesus' very last words to us. And so when he says, these things I have spoken to you, he's framing it up and saying, this is, our, this is my final words to you. Or, as we've said in here before, this is my deathbed speech. I'm about to die. I'm about to go with the Father. And I want you to listen, listen, listen. This is what I want you to know. These are the last words that I'm going to say to you before I depart. And these are the words that matter. Because this is what is going to sustain you. And so we get these, these five chapters full of Jesus' words where he leans in. He says, listen, listen, listen. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be tough. But this is what it's going to take to survive this, this departure. And what he says over and over and over is this idea of this culmination in chapter, chapter 15 where he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Chapter 14, he says, my peace. Listen, listen, my peace is actually going to be your peace, Jesus says. It's an amazing thing. He's sharing these things with us. The peace that you are trying to get, the only way to get it is through Jesus. In chapter 15 alone, he says, my words, listen, 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 my words will be your words, Jesus says. He says, come on closer, a little closer, listen, 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 I'm about to die. He says, my love will be your love. And here in chapter or verse 11, he says, my joy will actually be your joy. He is extending himself to us. This fruit that Jesus has of his life, his word and his peace and his joy and his, his love is actually not there just to look at, but it's there to share. If Jesus is anything, he is not stingy. If he is anything, he's, he is so very generous with what he has done. So these things that I've said to you, He's, that my joy may be in you. So Jesus is joy. What is my joy? He says this, that my joy may be in you. So what exactly is his joy? We're going to have to take a time out and look a little bit more in the context to understand the significance of this. We're talking hours from this statement. We're talking hours. Jesus is about to be crucified. If I'm going to die, right, a horrible death. I usually don't attach the word joy with this kind of context, right? This is an interesting form of understanding of joy is actually linked to one of the, the most horrific things that, that humanity has ever seen. Jesus is about to be rebuked. My joy should be your joy, he says. Jesus is about to be mocked. He is about to be spit upon. He's about to be rejected. His disciples that found himself so close to himself are about to scatter. His, he's about to be 
naked. He is about to be stabbed. He is about to bleed out. He's about to cry, literally, or sweat, literal tears. He's about to cry out to the Father, please let this go away. This is complete torment and complete pain. And yet he says it with a great, just not, not a whisper, with a thunderous idea. A thunderous idea that's not just something that says, oh, by the way, my joy will be your joy. He comes, he says, my joy is strong. And there's a substance so strong that it makes these things look so very weak. So yes, there is a rejection, but my joy is steadfast and it is stable. And that is about to be in you. If I'm like you, I want to be a part of that. Because I want something so stable and so something strong, something known for exuberation, right? The only thing that we know of joy in our lifetime, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things. With, with a birth of a child, you're just, just overwhelmed with emotion. Um, you just you, you go to like some frenzied crowd, right? And something somebody does a, something amazing, and you just kind of stand and you, you rouse. Like there's just just certain things that you just you just link with joy or excitement. Crucifixion and rejection and spitting and mocking and tearing and scattering and being isolated. Those are not this moment, but this is the context in which, in which Jesus is bringing us to this. There's a, there's a passage in the scriptures that say, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And so what, is, what are some of the things that Jesus found joyful in the fact that he was able to endure the cross? In this context, the cross is in focus. He knows he is about to die. For there is a joy in obeying the Father. More than anything in this world, he knows that he is not on a journey by himself. But there's a journey that has been charted out for him before he gets to that step. It's been charted out by the Father. And he trusts the Father fully. He looks to the Father and he says, I will go as you have told me to go. And if you tell me to go down this road, I will go. You are the greatest storyteller. Your stories all make sense in the end. And so my obedience is actually the substance of my joy. I don't get joy out of the experiences or the circumstances around me. My joy actually comes from obeying him. But not just obeying him. What will happen? He will be crucified. He will be raised. But then he will ascend. And where will he ascend to? To the right hand of the Father. And so he looks out and he says, my joy is complete and full and strong. Why? Because I know that this course is going to get me there. I am full of joy because I'm not just obeying him, but I will soon be reunited with him. But there's an undercurrent of mission or purpose. And there's where joy really comes to play. It's not just looking ahead of us or knowing obedience, but knowing exactly why we are on this planet. And Jesus knew that the joy that he would have to understand would have to be the fact that he would ransom sinners, that he would defeat sin and death forever, and he would actually buy us all up. He would ransom, he would redeem us all, he would buy us all up by these kind, this, this course of action. And that is where he found his joy, in obeying the Father, and knowing that he will soon be with him, but knowing that his life counted. 
And the only way for you and I to be redeemed, for us to be called righteous, the only way that we could be called sons and daughters is through his very action. And that is why, that is why he counted it full joy when he endured the cross. This is not a fake joy. This is not the stucco on, on the side of a house in Arizona. This is not trite. This is not phony. This is not fake joy. This is not just a plaster on a smile and say everything's okay kind of joy. He is truly going to cry. He's truly going to cry out to the Lord. And he's truly going to sweat blood. He's truly going to be in agony. And he's going to be deserted by his, his best friends. He is going to experience pain. So this joy is not trite or fake or phony. It is real and is strong. But this joy is secure because his perspective is on eternity and eternity alone. And so, yes, there are seasons of true weeping. There are seasons that you and I will go through of immense pain. Maybe separation from the things that we hold dear. And what Jesus is telling us is that there is a way for you to experience biblical joy in these moments. Because in these moments of hardships, in this season of crucifixion or pruning or those types of things, you can obey the Father. You will know that soon, one day, you will come and you will join him. And then likely that you have lived your life on purpose. And your purpose is to emulate him. Where there will be one day, there will be no more sickness and there will be no more death. There will be no more crying. And this is where biblical joy really comes into place. And this is, uh, we need to see one passage. So if you flip to Acts, Acts chapter 13, listen to this. Listen, listen to these verses. 13, 50, and 52. To prove the point that Jesus' joy actually became the early church's joy. And that joy has nothing to do with your circumstances when really your circumstances can be really pretty raunchy. And yet you can still experience this thing, this thing called biblical joy. Acts chapter 13, 50 through 52 says this, But the Jews incited the devout women and, and of high standard, standing and the leading men of the city. And he, and he stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Verse 51. But... Paul and Barnabas being kind of the ones, they're pretty strong here. Uh, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went on to Iconium. And the disciples, 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So persecution and all kinds of things can come our way, and yet here we have this idea that we can be filled with joy and that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what we want and so this, this joy is ingrained in us. This is who we are. For the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit. You have love and joy that are just ingrained in us. And in the same way they live here, they're not meant to live here. But they're, if they're true, they'll actually make an effect on other people. And so there's a big difference, ladies and gentlemen. There's a big difference between happiness and joy. There's a huge difference between the, the weight of this earth's joys and the joys that uh, we see uh, in the scriptures. You see, human joy will be shallow and empty. 
The joys that, that we have here on earth will be short-lived. They're small and they're shallow and they will continue to disappoint and they will fall short. And every time we put our trust, every time we lean into these kinds of earthly joys, these earthly kind of things that excite us, our, ex- our existence as a human really just starts to dissipate. When in fact, the only thing that can complete us is Jesus and Jesus alone. And so he says that my joy will be in you, that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. Going back to Jesus being, being completely generous and not stingy at all. To be full. To be to the top. To have a sellout crowd. To be complete. To be filled up. To have to walk with your hot chocolate, you know, like, like really kind of like, oh, I don't want to spill it. Like this is the kind of moment that you're looking at right here that your joy may be full. And so the disciples here from the inside out has, have this joy and this joy is in them fully and that their discipleship or their life or their fruit and this extension of who they are, they flow from full. They don't flow from empty. These disciples and who they are and what makes them them is that they flow from full. The only way that you can bear persecution, Acts 13, is for you to, be fl- for you to flow through full, for you not to be on empty, not for you to be shallow. This kind of the stuff, the sediment at the bottom of all kinds of containers, you don't want to have that come out. You want to flow from the very top for you it, it to come from a full place. And Jesus promises these things to us. And we know this because this is what Jesus does every time he encount, encounters humanity. Take the birth narrative. What do we see from the wise men? The wise men rejoice. What do we hear from the angels in the Christmas narrative? We hear them singing, right? What do you hear from the shepherds as, they walking, or as they're walking toward Bethlehem? They leave, and how are they leaving? They're leaving rejoicing. How do we see, what, how do we hear from Zechariah? What do we hear from Anna? We hear this exubulation that they are really, really excited about, about the coming Messiah. The greatest picture of the, of the Christmas narrative is that when Elizabeth was, was holding or with child with John the Baptist, and Mary was with child holding Jesus. The two cousins came and they come into the same room. And what do they say? When Jesus walks into the room, the little baby John the Baptist inside his mom leapt for joy. He leapt up. He was actually turning flip, you know, summer socks in, in, the, in, the babe, in the mom. This is what Jesus is able to do. He's able to come and he's able to come with joy. But we oftentimes, we've replaced these earthly joys with eternal joys. Take, for instance, um, John 4. John 4 is one of those really important passages that we, we need to be familiar with. But it's interesting to hear John, or Jesus come in John 4, and he's, he's walking up to the woman at the well. There's a, a lady, and she was a Samaritan. 
and a Samaritan who was out of standing in society. And so as a man in that society, you don't approach a woman and you talk to her. And yet Jesus comes and he walks and he starts talking to this woman. And if you are a man and you're able to talk to a woman, you would certainly not. If you were a Jew, you would certainly not talk to a Samaritan. They're half-breeds. They're no-goods. They're, they're defactors. They have broken off from, from the pure race. And so if you were to attach yourself to a talk to a woman, it would definitely not be a Samaritan woman. And if you got to the place where you, it was okay to talk to a woman who was a Samaritan, you definitely wouldn't approach a woman who had an, a past like hers. And here we have a rabbi, a great teacher, what we know, know as the Messiah, walking toward her, and they walk to Jacob's well. He walks and he sits on Jacob's well. The woman approaches her and he says, woman, will you get me a, a glass of, of water? Can you get me something to drink? And he says, she says, well, what are you going to get water from? You have nothing to, to uh, get, a, get water with. And he says, well, the water that I could give you is, is eternal water. And so there's this 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 banter back and forth with, with, well, this water is like, I can give you living water. Well, the only water that I know is water that hydrates, sure, but then you are dehydrated and you have to come back again. And that's the reason I'm here this morning is because I had to come yesterday. And so sure, yesterday's water was good, but it's gone and I have to replenish it over and over and over and over. And he says, but when I come, I'm going to come with living water that will satisfy forever. And she says, that's what I want. I don't want to come back to this well ever again. If you're offering a way to not come back and forth, that's what I want. And of course, what Jesus is offering is eternal life. A water that comes from him, a sustenance, a, a stability, a nutrients, so this kind of sustainability that comes from Jesus that only he can give. What we've done is we've looked to water. And we know that over course of time, we'll need another glass. And we've looked to friendships, and we know that over time, we're going to need another friend. And we look to a job, and we know that over time, we're probably going to need another, time, another job. We look to a sports team, and we know that sooner or later, they're going to lose. We look at the church, and we know sooner or later, it is going to disappoint. We look to our giftedness, the things that actually naturally and get supernatural. We look to our giftedness, and we know that one day we may grow old and dim. And We look to all of these things that we can put our hands on, and what Jesus is saying, what I can give you is not just water, but I can give you living water. I don't just have to give you joy. I can give you a joy that will make you full. And that's what the, the, the homework is about this week. Um, you've got a freaky looking man um, on this half sheet and he's staring at you, right? He looks a little bit like a zombie and we love that. Um, dead man walking. So um, here's, here's the idea. And so he's just staring at you, right? And he's just looking at you. And he's going to pierce a hole in your soul. You're like, uh, I feel like he's going to rob me of something. He will. He will. Here's what we want. Because this passage talks about fullness, we want you to examine your life and, and fill your body. <laughs> this is you, by the way. Gender neutral, right? Um, this, is, this is who you are. But we want you to fill up 
this little silhouette of your shallow joys. Because we know that throughout your day and throughout your week and throughout your month and year, just who you are, you're going to just start putting your attention towards shallow joys. So what are you filling your mind with? That would be considered a shallow joy. What are you putting your eyes on that would be considered a shallow joy? What are you consuming, right? That here in this, the middle section, the core of who you are. What is it would be considered a shallow joy? What are you literally putting your hands on that would be considered a shallow joy? Where are you, where's your feet taking you that would be considered a shallow joy? And so we hear Jesus say, and I'm just reading this, that his joy will make us full. We would love for the fact that in the course of your lifetime, that these shallow joys would begin to be dissipated and fall away and be replaced with this living water. Not just the water, the things that this earth can give us, but true living water. Not just these shallow joys, but these real relationship with the Lord that comes, with him, comes from him. Jesus says in this final discourse, my peace will be your peace, my words will be your words, my love will be your love, and my joy will be your joy. He is wanting a replacement. He wants his life to literally flow through you. I am the vine. You are the branches. Let me flow through you. And so, yes, this, this homework is a little bit of a warning, and that's on purpose. It's on pu- purpose so that you can look at these temporal things that you put your eyes and your hands things to, and you start to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I know that these things will not last. Will I, can I be replaced with, with you? And so, that your joy may be full. Looking at the Old Testament's understanding of joy and looking at exactly what the New Testament would look like. Joy was always associated with salvation. And salvation was best pictured in a party. And so all throughout the Old Testament canon, we see these treks or these pilgrimages, pilgrimages to the holy site, to Jerusalem, where there's going to be a party that was going to be there. So you're going to give your gifts and you're going to be at the temple, but then you're going to be able to throw just the biggest party. And over and over and over, the nation of Israel would sing and shout and be full of jubilation and full of joy. And this is the moment, the moment that they understood that salvation came through God and God alone and his provision for us. In the, Old Te- or in the New Testament, they, you know, we stop looking at the temple rituals and we stop looking at that expression and it's replaced with these moments or this, this understanding of true salvation. And so at the heart of that, salvation is at the heart of, of all of our joys, that we have joy when we understand salvation. But there's a term in the New Testament, starting in Acts, that joy was not just associated with salvation, but also persecution. When their bodies literally became like Jesus' bodies, and they gave up their life for the sake of Jesus themselves. And over and over and over in the New Testament, we see that persecution actually evoked this idea of joy because they were obedient to the Father. They knew that they would, they would join him soon. And so this is how we walk into this communion moment, is that our joy 
Our joy is full because of what Jesus has done. This is an expression of our salvation, that Jesus has saved us fully. But it's also, and this is the scary part, this is also associating with him in such a way that if God allows persecution, if he allows us to be given over for him, our joy and our identity will not be found in our circumstances, but will be found in Jesus alone. And so that's why we walk to the table. And this is why we remember this table. It's because of the significance of him. I got a little bit too far. In the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body given for you. And in a real way, he says, there is going to be something that you've never seen. You've seen me full and you've seen me strong and you've seen me teach and you've seen me heal. And soon you're going to see me in a way that you've never seen me before. Truly given over for you. Every principality that I've had will be laid down in order for something else to happen. And if just not the breaking of bread was not graphic enough, he took a, a chalice of, of wine. And this, this wine, no telling where it came from. But it was sought after because this was the, 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 the joy, the juice. And this was the drink that always meant festivity and fun and gladness. And he says, this is the blood of a new covenant. He says, poured out for you. And in the pouring out for you and the giving for you, they knew that something was going to be different. They knew that in his symbolism and in the idea that the lamb is going to be slain, that true salvation and true unity would have to come through him giving up his life. Over and over and over throughout the, the, the New Testament and over and over and over over the last 2,000 years, believers have come to a table just like this and partaken of a meal just like this and they've taken it with joy. Jesus tells us to take it with joy. He says, what I've done, I've done for you. And I've done it so that we can have a relationship with one another. This morning, I want us all to come. And if you see Jesus as truly the sustainer of your life, we want you to come and to take this for life and godliness or flowing through Jesus alone. So that's what this bread and this juice signifies. And in this revelation of who God is and our response, our response is twofold. It's one to stand up and to get and to walk toward life and godliness. But also just the realization that because he gave, we give. And so we want to make our lives in line with his commission. And we want to say, where you go, I will follow. I'm going to give my life for you. And I want to obey the Father. We want to, for you to express some of that giving, maybe even financially. Maybe it's just a commitment in your mind. But for you not to just to come and partake, but you to partake and have this gladness of joy truly fall out on some kind of expression. And so this morning, we've got men who will be in the four corners of the room, and I'll be up front, and we'll be serving this meal. And we love the fact that Jesus is our host he is the one that is coming to serve. And he says, I've come to do this with joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He didn't come 
with triteness and he didn't come with bitterness in his heart. He truly did it out of joy for us. So let us pray. Father, let us partake now with joy. Not a joy that we can make up, but a joy that you give us supernaturally. Allow us to stand to worship you in this moment. For us to literally, with our, with our, with our feet and with our eyes and our hands, to reach out for you and you alone as we remember your body and as we remember your blood, allow us to remember that you have called us to just an amazing relationship with you. Some of us need to talk pretty frankly with you this morning before we come to the table. And we need to share and confess some things that are on our heart. And even now, we pray that the, that the Holy Spirit is working in, in your heart and in my heart and all of our hearts, that he's bringing to mind these shallow joys, these empty things that we continue to pursue. And even though we won't get it right every time, we want this moment of communion to be a start, a fresh beginning of reaching out to you and you alone because you promised us something that is full. I've come to give you life and life abundantly, life to the full. Allow us to believe you for your word's sake. Jesus, this meal is yours because you are our host and you've offered your body gladly. And so we do this in remembrance of you. And it's in your name we pray.